Welcome to an episode of the Defo Mohapi Show, hosted by myself, Defo Mohapi. Thank you for taking some time out to listen to this podcast. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. Their views on the state of the world currently and what they think needs to be done to make our world better. Or at minimum, how we can all get along better and do better. Make sure to head over to radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of this podcast and other iAfrican radio shows. I hope you find this episode insightful. On the show today, I think I have someone who, after listening to their story, there's a saying that says, if you fall X times, you must be able to rise X plus one times. Kamran Elayin, do you agree with that? Yes, uh, my definition of success uh, is the management of your failures. And if you look at uh, uh, each uh, failure as a stepstone and as a learning vehicle, uh, you just uh, get back on your feet and uh, get better and uh, eventually you win. And if you look at any uh, startup, it is full of uh, problems. Many times uh, when uh, people look at a successful startup from a distance, they see a huge, nice, big exponential growth uh, like a S-curve or like a uh, Nike's uh, yeah, the Nike well, what's uh, this? logo. Hockey stick. The hockey yeah. stick. And um, while that looks really nice, reality is never like that. It's a bumpy it, road. It is very bumpy road and that hockey stick is full of ups and downs. And uh, uh, the job of a founder is to know that upfront and uh, gather around himself or herself a group of people who are understanding of that situation that is not going to be a bed of roses it will be full of bumps and the trick becomes on knowing about the problems and finding solutions and implementing it before you run out of your runway. Yes. Each startup has uh, so much uh, money available to it, which is the runway. And uh, within that period, if you can fix the problem and overcome the bump and get back on your feet and move up, you become successful. If on the other token, uh, your team does not tell you you have a big problem, and the problem keeps festering and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, the bump becomes uh, so big that uh, when you are falling from it, it is a huge fall and uh, you cannot recover and you run out of runway and out of money before you can fix it to come back up. That's true. I can relate somewhat to that. And I think part of the reason why, for our listeners, why I got 
Cameron on the podcast is because you've been involved in building some great companies. I, I think it clicked to me when you, I think you mentioned Soundhound, and I've used Soundhound before, and it's not often that we usually get to speak to people who've built one billion plus valuation companies. And I just wanted to first maybe share with our listeners the companies you've been involved in, both the successful ones and the ones that were not so successful because there's lessons there as well. And also what the lessons were or what do you think facilitated them being so great? Well, in my life, uh, the first portion of my life was as an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, I created 10 companies. Uh, my second chapter in life was as a venture capitalist. And you mentioned Soundhound. Yes. Soundhound is a company that I'm not the founder, I'm founding investor. And as a founding investor, it is a different role that uh, you take. Uh, you have a lot of emotional attachment to the company because you were there from beginning. Yeah but you are not the founder and the fo you have to be supportive of the founder. So I take a lot of pride in the fact that I've stayed with Soundhound from beginning is more than 12 years now and uh, have helped a company who already has been a unicorn and it's a very nice unicorn. Its valuation it is, yeah. is uh, quite a bit over a billion. Uh, Have you made good returns so far? Uh, well, all the returns are paper returns. When uh, we take the company IPO or uh, if there is acquisition, then uh, that's when the paper valuation becomes a reality. But uh, getting a valuation as a private company over a billion is a significant achievement because Soundhound has raised over a couple hundred million dollars at that valuation. So. It's uh, quite, uh, I'm very proud of that team. Going back to my own um, life as an entrepreneur, I started 10 companies. Three of them failed. I was fired twice. Six of them were uh, successful, quite successful. Were they all in ICT and tech? Yes, they were all in uh, ICT and tech. They were software companies, they were uh, chip companies, they were uh, communication companies, uh, system companies, uh, a large variety of uh, uh, different companies. Uh, of the six that were successful, three of them were acquired by the bigger companies, big corporations, and uh, three of them went IPOs. All three IPOs uh, were... Uh, unicorn IPOs and uh, since I was a co-founder of all of these companies uh, I can have a lot of uh, uh, claim for ownership versus when uh, you are an investor into a company even when you own a big chunk of the company as an investor uh, you still really should give a lot of the credit to the co-founders who have really made it happen uh, you are just a cheerleader helping them achieving uh, their dream and making it come along but when you are an entrepreneur and co-founder of the company it's uh, your butt which is on the line and uh, you go through all of the ups and downs uh, at times uh, lonely times when investors uh, do not trust you and do not give you money and uh, it is a very very enjoyable but there can be long journey and at times lonely journey Looking at the ones that fail, the companies that fail, 
Is there any trend that you could have picked up, and I'm trying to help other startup founders here, a trend that you could have picked up that is common or trends that are common among them that might have caused their failures? Well, uh, all of them had great ideas, all three of them. And uh, so idea is not such an important issue. In innovation economy, ideas come a dime a dozen. It's the execution that failed. All three of them were way ahead of their time. One of them was called Momento Computer, which if you Google it, you will find it was an iPad, someone like 15 years ahead of iPad in 1992. So you'd say market wasn't ready for that one? Many things were not ready, not just market. The whole concept came out as um, we had just taken my second company, Cirrus Logic Public. The company was going through the roof. It uh, became a unicorn and uh, its market cap uh, went over $3 billion. And I had uh, this uh, dream in 1989 that I was... Uh, reading Wall Street Journal and uh, on the front page of Wall Street Journal there was an article about automotive industry and uh, on that article there was an ad from a Japanese car company Honda in my dream I went with my finger and I touched that ad and the ad became alive like augmented reality type it actually was like a dynamic link today it's very common but this was 1989 and it became a live video and it showed me japanese car honda in motion and the ad was showing you the merits of that car today it's not a big deal on your iphone ipad you tap on a link and it goes and serves you an ad or uh, takes you to the website or takes you to YouTube and you see a video. 1989, nobody had ever seen anything Not like at this. All. And uh, I woke up and I started to write down notes. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, I got a whole new idea. I have to go and build this product. And it was amazing challenge because nothing like that existed. And I had to go and put a team together that could invent many, many things, almost everything from scratch. For example, we didn't have color LCDs, so we could not make this tablet have any color capability. So instead, we went with black and white, but we had to go and develop chips that would give you over a hundred shades of gray. So you could simulate uh, using black and white, but with different sh shades of uh, uh, black and white, you could simulate a, a color. We didn't have 3G or 4G. I don't even think we had uh, 2.5G yet. And uh, so how do you deliver an ad on, the <laughs> on a wireless device? Well, we figured out we, in those days, we had um, these modem chips uh, that were very slow. So we went and hired a group of engineers to 
deliver, develop a very advanced modem chip and fax. At that time, uh, the capability was around uh, 56 kilobar. And uh, we were able to do double that amount, uh, which was amazing achievement at that time. Today, it's nothing. It's horrible. Then you say, okay, you want to deliver a video. Can we do graphics? Well, we couldn't do video yet at that time. Uh, we couldn't do 3D graphics. So we put uh, an amazing team of people together to develop very high-end, high-performance 2D graphic chips. And then uh, you come and say, all right, you want to go and um, use this device for what? If you can't have video, if you can't have 3D graphics, what can you send and receive 2D graphics that looks interesting? Well, you could send text, but uh, that wasn't so exciting. We had this technology at that time called fax. Fax would let you send things that look like PDF document. So we said, how about the application for the device could be that you can send and receive faxes. Once you receive it, you could use the pen on the device. You could mark it up and uh, with your comments and send it back. Then you say, but send it back where? Because we didn't have wireless connectivity. We didn't have mobility. So the only way you could uh, have connection was if you would attach your tablet to the wall to uh, use the phone line and uh, use the modem chip and fax chip that we developed from scratch on the machine. So you could uh, send this. But where do you send it to? If I'm sending it to you, to Tefo, and Tefo does, is, is not uh, on the, online, uh, how, where does this go? So we had to create a buffer. Now, nowadays we call it the cloud, that you send it to the cloud, and then the cloud hand, uh, holds on to it and then sends it to you when you come online. But we didn't have a cloud there, so we had to set up a whole bunch of servers that would hold your faxes. And when Tefo would <laughs> get online, you would receive it, and then you could mark it and send it back to me. So every single thing had to be created almost from scratch. Like this thing you wanted to mark up on screen of an LCD. Well, we didn't have any technology to do touch screen. We had to develop all of that from scratch. Then you say, okay, um, what uh, drives this? What runs it? Well, you need an operating system, but we needed an operating system which was object-oriented. We didn't have object-oriented uh, operating system at that time. The closest thing we had was small talk. Small talk, if you go back to the history, it's a very slow operating system. Uh, it wasn't a really operating, it was a very slow operating environment. And it was interpreted. We had to go and take certain significant portions of that, compile it, and save it as modules that were executable so we could speed it up. And then you say, how about the chips? How many different chips you need to make all of this work? 
Intel had just made at that time Intel 386. So we got that, but we had to design four chips around it to speed it up and make the things be faster and better and usable, whether it was graphics or communications. So the amount of work we had to do from scratch was unbelievable. Plus, you know, nobody has seen a device that has no buttons. In my dream, when I was using that, there was no button. So how do you create a user interface that you have no buttons? First iPhone, iPad had buttons. It was iPhone 10 that finally had no buttons. Momento computer, Rev1 had no buttons. So you imagine what an amazing level of creativity we had to come up with to do this. And not to mention every other aspect. And when we finally shipped the product, um, first when we showed the product to everyone, everybody would fall in love with it and we would get huge orders. But since we didn't have internet, we didn't have websites, we couldn't sell it ourselves. We had to distribute it through computer stores. So the, the channels of distribution computer stores, we would show it to them. They would give us huge orders. Our orders for first year was $300 million. That's a lot. $300 million. So I said, God, first year revenue, $300 million is not possible. I should be conservative. So I cut it back. 200 million and I thought I was very conservative and I went and I told my board of directors that we will be having a first year revenue of 100 million break all the records they said are you sure I said yeah I have the orders yeah. <laughs> I have orders for 200 million I'm very conservative and everybody is so excited and the expectations are so high and the first quarter we shipped 5,000 units and price was five thousand dollars so 25 oh, million also, that's good yeah and uh, because nobody had ever seen this yeah. but second quarter all of the things started to come back with Why? people sending the things like how do you turn this on if you have never seen a device with no that's buttons it. how do you go where what do you push how do you get that they had to put uh, their pen on the screen and hold it for so many seconds before it would wake up but how do you communicate that so to people? So user education was a big problem? Huge said? problem. Huge problem. After the company went bankrupt, some of my engineers went to Apple. And they went and designed, a couple years later, Apple Newton, which Apple spent a few hundred million dollars. And that one was a flop. And some of my engineers also went to Microsoft. And Microsoft uh, was uh, developing... Windows for pen computing. And year after year after year, they would make a new version of it. And that was a flop. Finally, it was the first product that had interaction using your finger or a pen that was successful was Palm Pilot. I, that was about to say. That was yeah. the first one. That was about five, six years that after Momentum. screens, right? Sorry? It was black and white. Black and white screen, right. And it was Apple that, I don't know, 15 years later, after Momenta made a uh, 
uh, iPhone first and then iPad and uh, I, on the Rev 10 of it they made it be uh, no buttons yes so many of the things that look so easy it really took so many years and so many failures till finally a product like iPhone or iPad that's so easy to use and such a pleasure and at such a cheap price, uh, you know, a few hundred dollars you can get one, finally is possible. And uh, But the first version, as I said, we were selling them for $5,000. So you would say then in terms of technology, especially groundbreaking technology like the ones that you were developing back then, one needs to be prepared for failure because part of the, the journey involves educating your potential customers and also you should see in your execution don't select a product that is way ahead of its time uh, timing is extremely important my six companies that were successful all of them were highly innovative all of them were extremely disruptive and doing some very unusual things but the timing was right. Yes. So when you put execution team, good things would happen. But if you are too far in uh, developing a product which is too far in the future, then it's uh, impossible to overcome all of this. As uh, Momenta failed, uh, Newton failed, uh, Windows for print computing, version after version after version failed. Finally, Palm was a success and then... Uh, Blackberry. iPhone was a success, BlackBerry was success, and then uh, iPad was a huge success, and um, uh, Microsoft finally made their tablet to be successful. But these took time, a huge amount of time. So you would, I mean, you, you work with young entrepreneurs as well? Yeah, my advice is uh, look at the risks that you are taking. In general, if you are coming up with a new company you can take three kinds of risks one risk is product risk that uh, you are developing something that is very advanced very new idea very good thing that was the case in all of my companies all of my companies were doing uh, very advanced technology very advanced uh, product idea so if you want to be in high tech you have to Take, be prepared to take that risk. The second risk is people risk. If you bring into your company the people that you have worked with before, you know each other's strengths and weaknesses and you can help each other and work together very well as a team. If you hire a whole new team, because you started alone and you just yeah. have to recruit a whole team, then the team may not work so well together. So you will have a huge people risk. The third potential risk that you can have is a market risk. You develop a product or a service that's so advanced that there is no market for it yet. And you have to wait till that market develops. Usually, you can have one of these as a risk and be successful. You can have two of them as a risk and be successful. 
But if you try to do something which has got three risks in both technology, people, and the market, the chance for failure is extremely high. And in my companies, all six which were successful only had one or two risks. The three that failed all had three uh, risks. And that was a major reason why they failed. I like that model. And I think it, 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 it's useful in terms of mitigating risk. And looking at, you've been here in, in Addis Ababa and interacting with the hubs and the innovators and startups. Also taking into consideration that the space of innovation, tech and digital innovation is Africa. As much as it's been around for, I'd say, many years, it's still in its early stages as an ecosystem. What would you advise in terms of taking it forward to the next level? Well, uh, in general, within Africa, not just Ethiopia, uh, there are, uh, when you look at the whole ecosystem, there are a few major problems that uh, uh, stick out. Uh, one that is quite apparent is uh, the infrastructure, either lack of electricity, uh, lack of broadband, infrastructure related to business conditions, uh, how long it takes for you to register your company, how much paperwork you have got to do on um, moving your company forward on every aspects of that uh, in terms of... Uh, issuance of stocks, uh, how much flexibility is there uh, so that you could create a couple different class of stock for your company to give different kinds of shares to the employees versus investors. Uh, are you allowed uh, to have uh, within your country the uh, convertible uh, notes, yes. the safe notes that are uh, very useful for young start companies, uh, startups to come? So I refer to all of these as uh, infrastructure problems, issues. Uh, what are your bankruptcy laws? Uh, if your company goes bankrupt, are you going to be personally liable? liable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a huge issue. That should be the laws should be changed to remove that. So one set of issues uh, in Africa are related to infrastructure. Within that, you could also say the how easy is it for you to. Uh, move around uh, either yourself your employees or your products uh, are there flights available to go from one site uh, to another and many times it takes longer to go from one city in Africa to another city it's easier to fly to Europe and fly and back, back which is crazy the terms of expenses but all of these are infrastructure related issues that's one side the second side is innovation capital is there money available to come uh, to young companies? The younger you are, the more difficult it is for you to have uh, access to capital. If you look at the first capital you can get, uh, typically you don't need a lot of money, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 to get your company started. There is no way you can get that kind of money uh, from 
financial institutions no. because uh, the banks do not give loans to young companies and they shouldn't and even if they did you should never take it because uh, that's personal liability and you sure should never do that sure right uh, so the only possibility is either family and relatives which uh, if you have access to that if you are born into a family which is quite rich that's fine but if your father or mother or a rich uncle cannot afford to lose ten thousand twenty thousand dollars i would highly recommend you don't take money <laughs> cause big problems <laughs> from them because if your company goes bankrupt not only you feel bad for yourself but you your relatives also feel really bad yeah. that why did you destroy their money uh, so the other choice is to get grants or um, win a prize but uh, i'm against uh, that actually because uh, usually people um, uh, don't value grants uh, as uh, uh, high because they think it's a gift and they can do anything uh, with it and it uh, gets wasted a lot i really uh, believe that we the system that uh, angel investors can play a role in providing that money is a very good way however that's not possible in africa because when i look at the angel networks that are in africa few of them are composed of successful entrepreneurs who are willing to risk their money. If you go back to how angel networks were created, angel investors first and then angel networks from Silicon Valley, yeah. we had so many successful companies and these successful companies, uh, because they were dividing the stock between many people, uh, when a company like Apple would be successful, it wouldn't be just Steve Jobs who becomes uh, very rich. Yeah. There were also maybe a hundred other people, engineers, who would all become not as rich as him, but, but they, they would all become uh, millionaires or multimillionaires. These, or when Facebook would go public, there would be a thousand of them who would become millionaires or multimillionaires. So what do these people do? Many of them are engineers, they're geeks, and um, uh, they, you know, buy a home, they buy a car, and then they still have some money left. Uh, they maybe would take 5% of that, 10% and say, this is play money. And uh, play money, if they were gamblers, which few of the geeks are gamblers, they would go to Las Vegas and lose Throw it. it all away. <laughs> Uh, geeks are typically not uh, gamblers, so what they would do, they would say, well, I take, if I have, uh, say, uh, $5 million, 10% uh, of that is $500,000, this becomes my play money, and maybe I go and uh, invest in many companies, 25k here, $10,000, uh, $50,000 here, with my friends or whatever. And if I lose this, it's okay because this is my play money. That's why that kind of person was called an angel who did not ask too many questions. He wasn't or she wasn't like your uncle that you had to go and say, I'm sorry, mom, dad, uncle, I burned your money, would not complain much and uh, 
would give you money as a they believe in you yes they believed in you they said you are a good friend i give you this money you cannot pay me back that's fine this is part of life that kind of person does not exist in africa in large number while we have had some nice success stories yeah. out of africa and they have produced some rich entrepreneurs the total number of rich entrepreneurs who can have that kind of approach is not thousands or hundreds maybe it's 10 20 30 something like that who can have play money so we need to create angel investors who could give you money without asking too many questions but if they don't exist what do you do so some of the uh, angel networks go and train people from traditional companies executives whoever to become angel investors and they say would you like to invest there but because these people come from big corporations they have a financial mind and they don't want to gamble the money so they say oh i need to see your product i need to see if you have mvp i need to see if you have traction i need to see if you have revenue those kinds of things so they are not really angel investors in africa they are called angel investors but in reality they are not and if you look at it they look at a hundred companies and maybe invest in one or two of them mm. they need to see where this company uh, whether this company has mvp has revenues has profitability or not so they really are acting what i call a micro vc or a nano vc they are not as sophisticated as a venture capitalist as a financial institution and they don't have a lot of money a vc when they ask you a lot of questions and well, maybe they give you five hundred thousand dollars maybe they give you one million dollars these guys can only give you ten thousand dollars twenty thousand so that's why i call them a nano vc or a micro vc type of a thing so there is that big gap there if you are an entrepreneur and have some idea and need five thousand ten thousand twenty thousand to get started you don't get that money because angel investors in africa are looking for traction are looking yeah. for some viability so there is that big gap there at the beginning and then at the end there is another big gap let's say you created a successful company you have profitability you have revenues you have traction the investors who gave you money they need to cash out they need to have an exit the concept of exit is not for entrepreneurs the concept of exit it's, is it's for the investors the financing, yes. so investors need an exit either that exit can happen if you have stock market which africa doesn't have no, stock market for uh, technology and it shouldn't because the volume is not big yet is small or big corporations come and buy it but big corporations if they are not so familiar with high tech and they are not so familiar with innovation economy they would not know that they need this technology they are not familiar with it and they don't know which one to buy so that is a huge gap there so we need to do 
something to address the beginning and address the end so that we can make the whole ecosystem to work. For the beginning part, my belief is that some big multinational governmental organizations or governments themselves, local governments, need to look at young companies as building capacity. And they need to look at technology hubs, the tech hubs, as a university of future. And the same way government provides money to Ministry of Education to educate, they need to provide money to the technology hubs so that they provide proper education to the entrepreneurs. And the best education for entrepreneurs is not to teach them theory of entrepreneurship, is give them a few thousand dollars and let them go and learn. But you don't want to give them this money as a grant. gift no. or as a grant. It has to be as a loan. So they feel responsible that they should pay it back. However, if they work very hard and they could not pay it back, the bankruptcy law should give them protection so these people do not go to jail because they couldn't pay the loan. Yeah. And the government should look at this as capacity building. Instead of saying we invested in 100 startups or we provided money to take up so the take up could invest in 100 startups, instead of saying they invested in 100 startups and after two years, three years, 90% of them failed, what they should look at is a different index, a different uh, KPI. And that KPI, I refer to it as number of person years of jobs created. If a startup created jobs for three people for two years and then it went bankrupt, yeah. this startup should be celebrated. It created six person years jobs. worth of jobs. And each person year worth of job needs a chair needs a desk, needs a laptop, needs a mobile phone. So that's how you stimulate economy and create many secondary jobs for a lot of other people who make chairs, who make desks, who make laptops. And even those people can then have acquired some skills and go and get other jobs. Exactly. And one of the quickest ways you build capacity is through startup. Because if you go and work for a big company, if you can find job, which some com countries have huge unemployment rate and big companies True. are not hiring people. But if you were able to get a big job, a job in a big company, typically you are pigeonholed in a big company to do only one thing. Like they hire you as an engineer software engineer, you will always do software engineer. You may not be the best software engineer. You might be good marketing person. You might be good salesperson, but you wouldn't know because in a big company, you don't get a chance and you don't have exposure. I used to work at the HP and after two years, somebody asked me, did you ever meet a VP of marketing? 
And I said, I've never met a marketing person in my life because we had 30,000 people in company, but I was in engineering in corporate engineering labs. I never came across a salesperson, a manufacturing person, a finance person, or marketing person. In a startup, you get to meet everyone. You get to be a few hours a day doing engineering, a few hours a day do marketing, a few hours a week or a few hours per month do some accounting, some finance, some sales. You learn a lot. And within the startup experience, you figure out what you are good at and what you are not good at. And many people who are not good as a CEO can be extremely good in other roles. I found that I'm not the best CEO. So after my third company, I said, I don't want to be CEO. I found that I was much better as a chairman. And I always had a great CEO in every one of my companies. You may find out that you are not good CEO, but you are very good VP of engineering. You are very good uh, director of marketing or a good finance manager. So I joke about it. Startup could be like a uh, in Harry Potter uh, movies, like a sorting hat ah, that tells you what you are good, good at. at. Yes. And that's the key thing about capacity building. If you know what you are good at, then you go and take that kind of job in another company that could be big or small, and you develop a lot more skills, and then a few years later you can say, okay, now I've learned enough about marketing and marketing management. Maybe now I could be good at being a general manager or I could be a CEO. You could go and start a company. So startups should really be looked at as university of future that teaches you the skills that you need. And the government should provide funding to that not as a gift not as a grant but as a convertible loan and if you do a simple math let's say government gave a technology of one million dollars to invest this as a loan to a hundred companies gave each one of them ten thousand dollars if this is as a convertible loan that gets converted at a valuation of $100,000 into equity. Even if 99 of them failed, so you lose $990,000. If one of them succeeds, the $10,000 gets converted at the rate of $100,000. You own 10% of the company. And if that company has a value of $10 million or more, you get your $1 million back. And created more jobs. And you have created thousands of jobs as person years worth of jobs. So it's a very key thing. This is a very creative way to allow as part of legal infrastructure to do safe notes or convertible notes. And for governments to give money to a tech hub but have that technology hub distribute this money in small increments of 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 to many startups as a convertible loan. And here when we're talking on those values, we're obviously talking at the idea level, at the angel investor level. Exactly. So that's the first part of it. For the back end, 
my recommendation is for tech hubs again can play a huge role if they do the hackathons the technology hub could go to a corporation and say what sorts of solutions will you be providing to solve the problems you have using AI, using blockchain. Many big corporations know that they should use AI, they should use blockchain, but they don't know how and to what area. So Technology Hub could go to a corporation and say, tell me what is your biggest problem that you are facing right now and let us invite 10, 20, 50 startups to come up with an AI solution or with a blockchain solution or whatever new technology in the form of a hackathon and within a couple of days we can present a solution but the corporation has to be obligated to select minimum one of these solutions and sign agreement with them so they go and develop an MVP. If you do this right through this process, startups learn what is the real problem a big company has. They meet some of the executives. They have to make pitches in front of them. Executives learn how startups work how blockchain solutions could be or how AI solutions could be. And if they gave money to the winner, top winner or the top three winners to go to the next step to develop an MVP, through this process, they learn so much that either they give a real contract later on for this startup to sell them their product or their service or they might even come and buy that company a year or two later so that's how you can solve the exit problem for investors by creating hackathons early on that startups in your technology hub could get exposure to the big corporations and the big corporations could get exposure to local startups that makes sense because for me as from south africa's point of view we've got what's called uh, enterprise development small enterprise development which sort of pushes corporates big corporates to have a portion of their budget or their supply chain allocated to small enterprises and in return they get some benefits as a corporate and, uh, and now that you mentioned it, that hubs except that hubs are not involved in that and i think that's a key missing part if you get they the could hubs fall. to become involved, then the impact could be exponential. Uh, I have done a number of these things in uh, Tunisia, in Morocco, uh, working with the local tech hubs. And the result was phenomenal in Tunisia that uh, the uh, central bank defined three problems that they had and something like 50 startups came and uh, did a hackathon and... Uh, on average, about uh, for each problem, there were 10, 15 startups that had solutions and the bank selected the top company and gave them a contract to go and develop a prototype, an MVP for them. And startups got money 
not huge money, but maybe 50k, 100k to go and develop an MVP. But the lessons are also great. And the lessons everybody learned about everything. Yeah. I like that model. And uh, what I also wanted to find out is, as we wrap up, is uh, what's next for you? I mean, you've started companies, you've invested in companies. What's next for you? Are you still going to well, be in tech? we have a huge project that uh, is uh, created 10 million innovation jobs around the world in uh, developing countries. Okay. And uh, 5 million of that is in Africa. So that's why I come three to four times a year to Africa. And uh, I advise a number of governments on how to change their infrastructure. I advise uh, big organizations like World Bank, like uh, UNICEF, like uh, UNDP on how they might be able to address either the first gap on uh, providing funding to early startups or the last gap on providing exit to investors to make infrastructure work. And also, as uh, I uh, advise uh, organizations like 500 Startups, Seed Stars, Unreasonable Institute, uh, I try to help solve many of the problems that exist in Africa. And uh, the thing that is important to say, since my advice is free, Many people are interested to at least hear it out, whether they move on it and do something. I cannot push them, but uh, what I can do is talk about it, give workshops, help spread it. And sooner or later, many smart organizations go and change some of their things to zero in on tech hubs as the University of Future and uh, see it as a way, as a huge uh, tool for creating the jobs of future. And I think on that note, we'll wrap it up. And I want to thank you very much, Kamran. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, if you want uh, or your listeners want to check more, uh, you can check it on my uh, website, CameronElahion.com. We'll also post it, yeah? Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Tefo Mohapi Show, which is broadcast by iAfrican Radio. To be notified of future episodes of this podcast and any other shows from iAfrican Radio, please visit radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com and subscribe. You can catch future episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow myself on Twitter at Defomohapi, which is T-E-F-O. M-O-H-A-P-I. Also, don't forget to follow African 2 on Twitter at I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. Koto.